0: Thanks, Chris. It's been um, my pleasure and my wife's pleasure, Janet, who's here with me today, to get to know Chris and Ruthie and to spend time with them and um, to learn from each other um, and to just get the -the behind-the-scenes picture of all that's going on here at, at Redemption. And we're really excited about what God's doing here in your midst. And he's raised up a really good group of leaders for you guys. You are very spoiled and you're very blessed to have a very committed group of people who love you dearly, love Christ deeply, and want those two things to come together. And so I'm really excited for you. A number of years ago, my wife Janet and I had the privilege of hearing Nate Saint tell the story of his father, Steve Saint. He, along with four other adventurous, committed Christ followers, became history makers, okay? They became history makers. Led by Jim Elliott, these young men sent out to reach the Alca people in Ecuador. They were known as a savage people. Um, They were dangerous. They were considered violent to anybody who came from the outside. In 1956, during their attempt to try to connect with this tribe, Uh, all of the men were killed, and their bodies found later floating down the rivers. They were martyred by the very people they were committed to try to take the good news of the gospel to. But those of you that know the story know it didn't end there because uh, Rachel Saint, um, Nate's sister, would eventually go to the same people group, begin transcribing and translating their language so that she could put it in, A written form that they could actually share the gospel and through that almost the entire tribe became christ followers and then steve nate's son ended up going to the same tribe and living among them for a while here he is living with the very people who had martyred and killed his dad and you look at that and go that is just nuts what they did that's crazy and Jim is known for one of his statements. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What's he saying? It's not a foolish thing to give up something that you don't have control over, that you can't keep anyway. You give that up, and what you gain is something that you can never lose. See, that's the good news of the gospel. Well, we hear stories like that, and we think, wow, those guys were really, really committed. And what they did... That kind of stuff is just for the really, really committed, right? Well, they're really just following in the footsteps of the men we have been getting introduced to in the Gospel of Mark. And all they did was continue what the early disciples had begun. And what we're going to find in our passage today in Mark 6 is we're going to see that the call to follow Christ demands giving up our life in order to gain it. Today, we're going to introduce the cost of discipleship, and in a few weeks, when we get into chapter 8, we're going to talk about this even more. Today, in our culture, here in the United States, here in, in Phoenix, and it doesn't matter whether you grew up in Phoenix, whether you grew up in the United States, we're in a culture, and you're living in a culture that, I guess I would describe with the terms, we have a cultural Christianity. What does that mean? That means we've got a Christianity, and we hear of a Christianity that's presented often that promises to give us what we want. It's supposed to make our life easier, and it requires little from us. As one author puts it, he says, we've created a God we want rather than the God who is. I see it as kind of like he's, we, we see them often as a divine candy machine. So I, I come up to this divine candy machine, and I put in my dollar. It's not a quarter anymore. It's a dollar, right? I put in my dollar of church attendance. I put in my dollar of going to my redemption community. I put in a dollar of serving, and maybe even I put in a dollar. And because I've done these things, I should be able to pull from this divine candy machine and get whatever I want. Now, we don't think we think that way until something happens that we don't like or something happens that we're not expecting. And our first question is, why this? Why me? Why now? God, why are you doing this? And we've been influenced by the culture around us to kind of view God that way and we view Christianity as something that should just give us more and require nothing of us. A friend of mine said it this way, As Americans, we have lost our perspective because we are such a privileged class of people. Our lack of life-threatening persecution, as well as our great prosperity, have bred complacency, apathy, and a prevailing view that costly obedience for the cause of Christ is totally out of the question. We believe we exist to be pampered, not to be persecuted or denied what we feel we deserve. So we demand an attempt to create a pain-free life. When the unbidden trials do come, we think we have the right to walk out, eliminate them, ignore them, get depressed, get angry, or insist that God end this difficulty right now. Ever been there? I have. We believe we have the right to focus on the great injustices we're suffering which just aren't fair. No more pressure, no more unlovable people, no more pain, no more heartache. I just don't deserve all this grief. Jesus confronts that kind of thinking, and we're going to see it in our passage today. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. All the way through Mark so far, we've had this big overriding question that we see as being presented. And the question is simply this. Who is Jesus, and what are we going to do with him? Who really is Jesus, and when I see who he is, how am I going to respond to that? John the Baptist told everyone that Jesus was coming, and that Jesus was going to baptize him now with the Holy Spirit. Something new and radical and different was about to change. And Jesus demonstrated that he truly was different different than any man or prophet that had come before him and different than any man or prophet that was going to come after him. He's demonstrated so far through these first five chapters in Mark that he had power over disease. He had power over the demons and even death. So far we've seen him heal an unclean leopard, cast out an unclean spirit, heal a paralytic, um, heal the man that had a withered hand, cast out demons of a possessed man and put them into a herd of pigs. He healed a woman with an issue of blood, raised the centurion's daughter from the dead. And those are just the ones we've seen because it says, and there's many that he healed. So Jesus has just been showing that he is different. He's demonstrated even that he had power over the wind and the waves, and he calmed the storm. And even more significant than this, Jesus claimed that he could forgive sins. All of this is what we've been seeing and have been building up in these first five chapters in the book of Mark. Now, as we see, it's all about him and a response to him. He describes his kingdom as being different than what we expect. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a political kingdom. He is king, and we're to be his servants. We're here to serve him. And in his kingdom, it's not about power. It's not about prestige. It's not about possessions. It's about being humble and meek. So now in the midst of establishing his credentials through all of these miracles, Jesus has called out a few to really follow him. Back in Mark chapter 1, you can turn back there a second if you have your Bibles open. Mark 1, verse 16, we read this. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. Okay, if you underline your Bible, there's there's two words you need to underline here. Okay, you find it first in verse 18. It's the word immediately. Immediately they left their nets. Look at verse 20. And immediately he called them, and they left their father. Go on to chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus, now he's passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Here's the deal, you guys. When Jesus called them... They didn't say, well, give me a couple weeks to kind of look at the pros and cons of this. I'll do a pros and cons evaluation. I'll get some counsel from some outside people and kind of figure out what I should do with this. When Jesus called them, they immediately dropped their nets. They jumped out of the boat and followed him. This is significant because when they dropped their nets, they were walking away from their occupation. That's what their livelihood was. They were walking away from their reputation. And they were most likely pretty wealthy and well-known business people. They had servants working with them on their boats. So they've left their, their occupation. They left their families. They left their inheritance. And they left their identity. You see, following Jesus will cost you everything you have, everything you are, and everything you hope to be. None of which we really have control over and can hold on to anyway. So we're giving up the very thing we can't control and can't hold on to. To gain what? To gain something you can never lose. It, it, it costs us everything. Everything. So today, Mark 6, we're going to to see what it may cost us to follow Jesus. We're going to see three key things today. The first of those we're going to see in verses 1 through 3. Follow me as I read along here. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Here's what we're going to see. The call to follow Christ may require facing rejection even from your family and friends. Look at what's happening here. He's in his hometown the people that he grew up around, the people that knew him best, Nazareth. And then he goes to the synagogue, and he goes there to teach. Now, he probably went to the synagogue. This is a synagogue he probably went to every day, or every Sunday, I mean. Every week, he's in the synagogue, Saturday. Every week, he's in the synagogue, okay? That's where he grew up. Now he shows up, and he goes there, and he teaches. And they would occasionally have... Teachers come in, they were reputable men, they would teach, they would stand up, they would read the scripture, then they would sit down to explain the scripture, and then they would entertain questions and dialogue about it. So here's Jesus, he's in the synagogue in Nazareth, the one he probably grew up in, and he's teaching. And they're going, wait a minute, when they first heard him it says they're astonished. And what... Wow, listen to what he's saying. In Luke, it says that they wondered at the words of grace that proceeded out of his mouth. They're astonished. It was a positive response, like, wow, this is really, really good stuff. But then they start asking a question. They go, wait a minute, who is this? This this is, this is the carpenter, this is the carpenter kid. This is, Je- this is Joseph's son. What's, what's he doing up here? He don't, he's never been trained. Well, isn't this Jesus the kid down the street? And then they realized, and he's claimed to be the Messiah. He can't be. He's just the kid down the street. He's a carpenter, not a king. So then you see what the response was? They were offended. They went from being astonished to offended. As a matter of fact, in the Luke uh, passage that talks about this, here's what it says. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill, on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Do you think they were a little ticked off? They went from being astonished at his words to wanting to push him off a cliff and get rid of this guy, this Jesus. What right does he have to get in our synagogue and act like a teacher? He's a carpenter. And Jesus said, verse 4, prophet." is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So what happened? Jesus left there because of their unbelief. Look at verses 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So here's our first principle, see? Following Jesus may bring rejection even from your family and friends. And you know what? That's where it's hardest. These are the people who should love you the most. And some of you may have experienced that. When you came to Christ, that was it with your family. We had a couple in our redemption community that um, had come out of the Mormon church and had gotten saved and and their families just disowned them. I was having a conversation with a student down at ASU a few weeks ago, and as an 11th grader in high school, one of his friends took him to church. He heard the gospel for the first time, and he became a follower of Christ, and his mom and brother kicked him out of the house because of it. See, it... And that's the one that hurts the most, isn't it? Because those are the people who should be most excited that, you know, we're, we want to get our life together or act together with God and we want to be, be the kind of person God wants us to be. And, and instead of affirmation acceptance, we get rejection. See, that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 10. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of their own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, he's not coming saying, I'm just coming and I'm going to just make everything a mess. But that may happen. And he said, see, here's the issue. Are you going to love them more than you love me? You've got to love me more than any family member, than any relationship. This is an all or nothing deal. You're either in or you're out. you got to follow me, and that may mean it's going to cause some problems with the people closest to you. And you may have to choose, are you going to love Jesus or are you going to love this family member? That's a hard spot to be put in, isn't it? That's hard. I haven't faced that. Some of you have. That's a hard call. But you see, following Jesus is an all or nothing deal here. And he's telling us it may bring rejection. Now, as the controversy over Jesus now builds and rejection is beginning to escalate now against him, now what he does is he's starting, and he's been training his 12 disciples, and now he's starting to send them out on his behalf. And he's sending them out for the first time here in verse 7. Look at what it says here. Verse 7, And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey, Except a staff, bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Okay, we saw first that following Jesus may require facing rejection. Here we're going to see that following Jesus requires complete dependence on Him. If we're going to take this hard step of following Jesus, we're going to have to depend totally on him. So he's sending these guys out and he's saying, don't take anything with you. They weren't supposed to take bread. That's food, sustenance. They weren't supposed to take a bag. Uh, There it refers to a bag that often they would have that um, they would put their things in. So, you know, you're going on a vacation. I just went back to the Midwest last week. And... um, I'm getting my my bag together and my golf clubs together and I had to weigh them and both of them were 52 pounds. Stuff. I had more clothes and stuff I'm taking back for two weeks. What do we put in suitcases? Stuff. This is like saying you're going out on a trip and you can't take a suitcase. Or my golf clubs. You, 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 No bag. N- you're taking no possessions with you. And he said, no money. So I've got no bread to eat. I've got no bag to keep anything else in. And he says, no money. You don't have any resource to buy anything. Then he says, don't take two tunics. Well, the tunic, they would usually wear two of them. One would be for clothes. The other would be like a jacket, but it's a second tunic. And they would use that one often for a pillow. So he's saying, don't even take a pillow with you. You're taking nothing with you. What they could take was their staff and sandals, and they needed the sandals to keep their feet from getting all cut up on the rocky roads they're going to be on. So they're to go out now with a minimum of clothing and supplies, totally trusting that the Lord is going to provide for them. So they took nothing with them. Look at what else happens in verse 10. And he said to them, because, okay, the question, I'm, I'm not going out with anything. I got nothing with me. Where am I even going to stay? Look at verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place you will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So he says, okay, you're going to go out and you're going to find a house. And when there's somebody that receives you, stay in that house. And he says, stay there till you leave. Well, okay, that sounds kind of dumb. Why do you you say stay till you leave? So what he's saying is you go to the house, the first one that receives you, you stay there. Don't look for another place. Don't look for a better place. Whatever door is open to you, stay there. If they don't receive you, then you leave. You don't bless them and you go on until you find a place that will receive you. See, they were totally dependent upon the provision of God for their food, for their sustenance, for a place to sleep. They had to depend on others. So here's the principle we've got to ask about ourselves. In following Jesus, are we willing to trust God For all of our needs now I I don't necessarily think you know Jesus is saying go sell your house go get rid of everything and go stand out on the street and see if you can find a place to live the principle here for us though is are we going to be so dependent on God that we trust him for everything Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6 do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves will break in and steal. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto you. He said, have your priorities straight, seek the right things, seek his kingdom, depend on him, and he's going to provide what you need. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. Did you catch the word there? Yeah, what was it? All, 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 all. Peter said it this way, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence he's given us everything we need for life on the horizontal level and everything for godliness to be in a right relationship with christ he's given us everything we need i did an extensive study on that word everything in the greek language and you know what i discovered it means everything He's given us everything we need for life on this level and to be in a right relationship with him, for righteousness. Through a true knowledge, it says there. That word in the Greek is is often translated true knowledge. It's not just knowledge or information. It's true knowledge. And when that word is used, there's always a relationship between the one knowing and the one known. Okay, so let me translate that into here. It says, we have everything we need for life on this level, and the physical level, and we have everything we need for life on the spiritual level through a real, vital, experiential, living relationship with Jesus. You know why we struggle depending on Jesus and why we don't think he's given us everything we need? Because we're not in a living, vital, active, real relationship with him. We kind of add him to our life where it's convenient. We pray when there's something we need. See, when we're in that kind of an intimate relationship with Jesus, number one, all those other things don't matter as much, and number two, he provides what we need. So here's the question. Are you willing to live a dependent, surrendered life? You know, there's been great examples of people who've done that over the years. Um, One that jumps out to me is the story of George Mueller. Um, He established orphanages in England, which eventually cared for 2,000 children at a time. He lived a very sacrificial life and supported his family and all the orphan children in a truly faith ministry. Appealing only to God for his provision. He took God completely at his word and never put limits on what he could accomplish and provide for so many. It says, Mueller never made an appeal for money. The children never went hungry or ill-dressed. Never a debt went unpaid. Yet there was never any security except the faith that God would know and that somehow he would provide. And God did so. Though often at the very last moment, when there was not a penny in the purse and no food on the tables, Mueller's homes existed by this never-ending succession of miracles of faith. Their history is largely page after page of answered prayers. Wow. See, are we willing to live a dependent life that is totally surrendered to Christ and trusting Him for every need? That's how he sent the disciples out. He wanted them to understand that. He didn't want them to be able to depend on anything but himself. And so they went out, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But trusting God can sometimes go much further than just depending on him for our physical needs. It's interesting now as we're going through this, all of a sudden we jump into this story about John the Baptist? See, now as these guys have gone out and they're spreading the story and they're healing people, now it's spreading even more about Jesus. And it finally gets to King Herod. And that's where we're at in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now for the sake of time, I'm going to take this next section. I'm just going to summarize it for you and tell you what happens here in verses 14 through 29, okay? Here's what's happening. The name of Jesus now is spreading. And the question is, who is this guy Jesus, right? Where did he get his miraculous power? Where did he get his knowledge? Where did he get his wisdom? He's just the carpenter's son. He can't be the carpenter's son. There's got to be another explanation to this guy and he's certainly not the Messiah that he claimed to be, so who is he? So some thought, well, he must be John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. Some said he's Elijah who's returned. And some said, well, he must be a prophet like all the other prophets. Well, here was Herod's conclusion. Of those three choices, Herod said, you know what? He's got to be John the Baptist risen from the dead. Well, wait a minute, when did John the Baptist die? You know, we heard about him at the beginning of Mark, and we haven't heard about him since. Well, here's what had happened. Um, Herod, the king, had married his brother's wife, Herodias, who was also his niece. Okay, So John the Baptist went to King Herod and confronted him that that was not lawful. He was committing both adultery and incest at the same time. Well, Herod's new wife, adulterous wife, Herodias, didn't think too highly of John for this. Matter of fact, she wanted him killed. But Herod wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it, number one, because he kind of had this respect for John, but he also knew that he was pretty popular. Verse 20 um, it tells us this that he feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and so he kept him safe. But what happened is his feelings were John, for John, were no match for his wife and his friends. Because here's what happens. On his birthday, he has this big birthday bash. And he invites all of the key leaders and all of the, the government leaders and all of the key officials, you know, all the cool, significant people. These are, these are the elite of the elite. He invites him to this big banquet that he has. And Herodias' daughter, Herod's wife's daughter, dances in front of everybody. And it pleased Herod and his guests. And, and that word pleased there was a euphemism for, for sexual um, arousing. It, it was a you know, a very arousing dance that she did. He was very pleased with it. And he's so enamored as he's been partying and probably half drunk, and he's so impressed with her that he says in front of everybody, I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. That's huge. So she runs off to Mom and says, Mom, this is what... The king has just said, what do I do? So Herodias takes this opportunity to finally get what she wants, and she says, go back and tell him that I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And that's what she does. She goes back and tells him that. And Herod, it says, he, he was very sad. But he had to fulfill his promise. Number one, it was his word. Number two, he had said this in front of all of the leaders that are underneath him, he can't go back on his word now. So he fulfilled the promise, and John the Baptist's head was delivered to Herodias on a platter. So John the Baptist stood up for truth, and it cost him his life. And you know what? That was just a precursor of what was to come. Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned for his belief in Christ. Paul was imprisoned and tortured frequently and endangered and killed for his faith. Peter was martyred under Nero and chose to be crucified upside down. People often had to choose between Jesus and someone they loved very dearly. Christians paid a high price in those days. Some of them were flung to the lions while others were burned at the stake. Emperor Nero would put a pitch on Christians and then he would burn them to light his garden parties. He sewed them in the skins of wild animals and had his hunting dogs tear them to pieces. Believers were tortured on the rack and scraped with pinchers. Molten lead was poured on them, and red-hot brass plates were put on their most tender parts of their bodies. Eyes were torn out, and parts of their bodies were cut off and roasted in front of them. Hands and feet were burned, and then cold water would be poured over them to lengthen the agony." hi, I want to follow Christ, like they did. When you became a believer at that time, you knew you were following Christ, and it might take you to your death. But you know what is happening today, you guys? We just don't hear all about it. Um, Open Doors International, a charity that supports Christians under pressure, said that 2,123 Christians were killed in 2013. And during the most recent period, in 2014, more Christians were killed in Syria alone than were killed globally in the previous year. This thing is ramping up. And the World Watch List, which annually monitors the media worldwide for all reported incidents, emphasizes that this is the minimum because these are the ones that are documented. The estimates say that there could be seven to 8,000 a, a year that are being killed for their faith alone. And I think that number is low too. Um, and we don't hear about it. I've got a, a, a friend who's a, a pastor in Nigeria, and he said there's been 1,600 people killed in the last nine months in Nigeria. You didn't read about that, did you? We don't hear about that. There are Christians right now being crucified for their faith. And I think it's coming our direction. Um, My wife was reading a story just this week of, of a gal in the military who had a Bible verse up in her cubicle. And everybody had little sayings and quotes in all the different cubicles that she worked with. Hers, she had a Bible verse up. And she was commanded to take it down because they said it was offensive. And when she didn't take it down, she got tried for um, insubordination. Just to have a little Bible verse up on her desk. It's happening today. My friend in Nigeria, Umar, had a knock on his door, and 11 people showed up from northeastern Nigeria. This was just this last year. He uh, was a pastor, and his wife and um, nine other people from their church congregation left to flee um, from the Boko Haram who had invaded their city. And they came down there to to flee and to save their lives. And they ended up living with Umar and his family for, for almost three months. And Umar began teaching them and teaching them principles of obedience. And as he talked through some of this stuff on costly obedience, what it costs us to obey, the pastor was convicted, and he said, I need to go back to my church and my people in northeastern Nigeria and serve and minister to them. And they all said, no, don't go back. It's too dangerous. Don't go back. He and his wife prayed about it, and he says, this is what God is calling me to do, and I have to obey. So he went back to his people and to his church, and three days later was beheaded. That's happening today. We're so protected from it here where we live that we don't see that. And it's easy for us to take our Christianity for granted. Umar says, every day we wakes up, today may be the day I get to die for Jesus. Boy, we don't think that, do we? We wake up and say, boy, Jesus better come through for me today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. God may not require of you your physical life like he did Umar's friend, but he he does say this, in order to save our life, we have to lose it. What does that mean? See, costly obedience is forfeiting our right to ourselves. It is choosing to surrender our wills to God's will for us. It's relinquishing the right to try to control our world and the people in it. It's turning away from deciding how we will bless ourselves and allowing God to determine how he will bless us through submission to him. It's accepting his plan. It's accepting pain, persecution, hardship, and deprivation as tools in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father to mold us. You see, following Christ may mean you have to face rejection even from the people who you think should love you the most. It may require and it will require that you live completely dependent on him and it may require your life. Remember the disciples, they left immediately, right? They dropped their nets and jumped on the wall. Here's the question I want to leave you with this morning. What are the nets you're hanging on to? What are the things that your identity is being based on? that you're building your life around other than Jesus? What are the things you are having a hard time letting go of and saying, God, it's all yours? What's the boat you're having a hard time jumping out of this morning? That place of security, of safety. And for you, jumping out of the boat may be loving a spouse that's being a real jerk right now. It may be going to a family member and sharing the gospel with them that you've been afraid how they might respond. It may be going to your employer and confessing that you stole something from the office. I don't know what God's calling you today in what may be a hard step of obedience for you. But I do know this, it may require rejection. It requires you got to be dependent on God and trust him. And you know what? you got to give up your life. For what? To gain his life, something you can never lose. Would you join me in prayer? God, forgive us for sometimes grumbling and complaining and feeling sorry for ourselves. Forgive us for not being patient to wait for you to answer our prayers. God, forgive us for trying to control our circumstances and the people in our world because somehow we believe we deserve that and it's going to satisfy us. God, forgive us for hanging on to earthly idols and as people and, and things and possessions and activities. God, help us to follow you and give us the grace we need to be willing to be obedient whatever the cost. And we pray to that end. Amen.